This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. a very traditional view of what writing does, uh, what writing should do, uh, what the novelist should do. And several critics have described Faulkner as the last novelist, uh, as though he is someone who is taking a tradition of the novel that is there in Dickens, in Hardy, in Balzac, you know, writers whom he greatly admired. The responsibility of fiction to create a world, to invite us to judge morally the world around us, uh, to create characters who will engage with us in moral terms. You know, we began by talking about Faulkner's greatness in terms terms of technique, in terms of modernity, in terms of modernism. There is something very, very traditional about Faulkner, something which I think is in a, a vein of strongly humanist, you know, uh, traditions. Is William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom the greatest Southern novel ever written? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, this week's Talking Books is dedicated to the life and literary legacy of Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist William Faulkner, an unforgiving observer of human nature whose modernist Gothic writing style, blunt, rough and wonderfully vivid, makes him more praised than read. Jay Perini, author of One Matchless Time, a Life with William Faulkner talks to me about the dark side of this enigmatic novelist's life, what it took to write his award-winning biography and the role alcohol played in Faulkner's life and intimate relationships. And does a Faulkner classic lend itself to a rereading? Stephen Matterson, Professor of American Literature at Trinity College Dublin and John T. Matthews, Professor of English at Boston University discussed the challenges of reading Faulkner, his complex racial attitudes and the deep sense of history and of place in his iconic writing. This is a show about a troubled literary giant, his creative obsessions, his drinking binges and his unmatched sense of humour. But first, the agony and the sweat, the private life of William Faulkner. In an interview with the Paris Review in 1956, American novelist William Faulkner said, An artist is a creature driven by demons. He don't know why they chose him, and he usually is too busy to wonder why. He is completely amoral, in that he will rob, borrow, beg or steal from anybody and everybody to get the work done. Poet, novelist, biographer and critic Jay Perini has spent a lifetime getting close to the unique creative spirit that was William Faulkner. He is the accent professor of English at Middlebury College in America and is the author of several books, including the highly acclaimed Robert Frost, A Life. Now, Jay has also published several novels about other leading writers, including Leo Tolstoy, Walter Benjamin, John Steinbeck, Herman Melville, and he's a co-editor with Philip W. Ledinger of the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Literature. Jay's non-fiction books include... 
The Art of Teaching, Why Poetry Matters and Promised Land, 13 Books That Changed America. Now, I have to say, his award-winning biography of William Faulkner, One Matchless Time, offers readers a hugely revealing insight, if a little frightening, into the life and imagination of one of America's most celebrated literary talents. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of talking to Jay from his home in Vermont. Let's take a listen. I've been fascinated with Faulkner since the time I was a teenager and first read The Bear and the early stories um, when I was in college, in the, and this is, you know, almost half a century ago, I read As I Lay Dying and was completely blown away by the quality of the writing, the intensity, and I read The Sound and the Fury and Absalom, Absalom. And then when I became uh, a university teacher in the mid-70s, I would often teach Faulkner's novels, usually to creative writing classes, um, and sometimes classes on modern American fiction. And so it's been a kind of quiet obsession of mine, over many decades. And um, I felt there, whenever I sent students, say, oh, here, you've got to read about the life of William Faulkner, I didn't really know where to send them. Uh, I always admired Joe Blotner. He was a friend of mine. But um, his massive two-volume biography of Faulkner is, is as close to unreadable as a biography gets. My friend uh, Gore Vidal used to talk about blotnerizing an author. By that, he meant uh, piling on fact after fact, laundry list, meetings attended, and so forth. And I was trying to get at a coherent... I thought what was required in the realm of biography was a real narrative that told the story of William Faulkner's life. And it was... His work came out of his life. Uh, Very rarely is there such an intimate connection. One sees it in someone like James Joyce, of course, who was a huge model for William Faulkner. But Faulkner's writing came absolutely folded out from his life. Everything he wrote about was a meditation on the circumstances of his own upbringing in the Deep South, in Mississippi, where he grew up, in Oxford, Mississippi, where he spent essentially most of his life. Faulkner was a guy who rarely left home. I mean, he went briefly to Hollywood to make a little money. He traveled a bit here and there. But for the most part, William Faulkner stayed at home, He hated publicity, and his life was in his writing. But his writing came out of his intimate relationship with the community around him in Lafayette County, Mississippi, which he, of course, called Yakna-Batafa County. How would you describe his personality, Jay? And how did his type of personality impact on his relationships? I know he had a very difficult marriage. I I spent a lot of time talking to Faulkner's daughter, Jill, about him. And he was a completely impossible man. When he was um, living in Oxford, Mississippi as a boy and teenager, uh, he was very pompous. He walked around in fancy clothes and often had a monocle on and a cane. And they called everybody in town, referred to him as Count No Count. And I think he was a pompous little fellow. He was short and five foot five. Uh, he was extremely thin. As a boy, he was stooped, and so his mother made him wear a back brace, so he learned to stand up straight. He rather regretted that he didn't get to fight in World War One, so he went off to Canada and pretended to join the RAF and even posed in a famous photograph of himself in an RAF lieutenant's, you say lieutenant's, um, um, uniform, but he never rose to the rank of anything or probably never had much of a connection with the RAF at all. He certainly was not much of a pilot, and uh, so he was full of tales about himself. He had heroic dreams. Then when he finally moved back, he always wanted to marry Estelle Oldham, whom he did finally marry, Uh, but she married somebody else first, and he waited 10 years and then finally married her. And by this time, I think he was, you know, something of an alcoholic. 
And to the very end of his life, he struggled mightily with the bottle. I mean, he was a whiskey drinker, and he drank massive amounts of booze. Um, I think he probably even wrote while he was drunk at the end. Nothing else, ex else explains a novel like um, A Fable. It seems like the stumbling prose of a drunk. Nevertheless, um, you know, he could hold his booze, and he managed to write between 1928 and, say, 1942, that's the period he called one matchless time, uh, the works just came, couldn't stop the flow. He was a man inspired. The gods were speaking to him. He was the voice of the South. Flannery O'Connor once called him the Dixie Express, and she said, if you're a Southern writer, stay off the tracks. Don't go anywhere near that, or you're going to get run over by this great steam engine, the Dixie Express. So Faulkner was this miracle worker who for a fairly compressed period of time, I'd say 1928 to 1942, he was immensely productive, wrote four, five, six, seven absolute masterpieces of world fiction, which finally earned him the Nobel Prize in 1949. But it was an achievement that could not be foreseen or calculated. There's no way of even understanding how Faulkner wrote this stuff. Jay, do you think he made a lot of sacrifices in order to be as prolific as he was? Do you think that he made some very tough decisions, whether it was in his personal relationships with his family, with his wife, with his friends? Do you think he was able to compartmentalise things in that way, make tough decisions and steam through? I think that the tough decision Faulkner made was not to have a life. I think he went along with the motions of a life. He was a rotten father. His daughter told me as much. He was... Uh, she said that uh, every time he finished a major work, he would go on a drinking binge. For three days, he would drink like a madman. And you didn't even want to get in his way. Or he, She said he would rearrange her features. She'd have to hide under the staircase as she saw him coming. And he would drink often on those binges until he went completely unconscious. His marriage to Estelle was really very remote and chilly. And he had very few close friends. You know, he was a man who chained himself to his desk, and I think he almost did so out of some strange inner compulsion. You know, he's like, you know, the Apostle Paul or something. He's getting these dictations from somewhere, and he can't stop doing it. But, you know, no one would want to be around the Apostle Paul, and nobody would want to be around William Faulkner as a friend. Uh, he had very few friends, as far as I could tell in my research on him. His friends were in his, in his writing, and almost anything he did in his life was a kind of research which he would then put into his writing. Everything that there is of interest about William Faulkner somehow gets feathered into the writing. What was that like, though, to discover all those about, you know, one of the icons of American literature? You're getting so close, so intimate with him, yet you can feel that maybe he's not a very pleasant character at all. Did you have awkward days with the research or uncomfortable yeah, days? I found, you know, you write a big, long biography like this and you spend, you know, years reading his correspondence and his letters. You go talk, go around interviewing people that knew him uh, and you spend some time in in the South, I spent time at his house in Mississippi. Uh, you get a sense of the world he lived in, but then you realized how complex it was and, uh, and, and, and how difficult he was. You know, my, actually, I, I grew in admiration for him in a strange way. Uh, I didn't like him. I'm so glad he wasn't my father or, or even my uncle. I'm actually delighted that we never met. I don't think I would have liked to have spent one evening with William Faulkner. I think he was the kind of man so repressed that a conversation with Faulkner would have been extremely boring. Many people told me that when they had dinner with him, 
he had very little to say whatsoever. I talked to dozens and dozens of people who had lunch or dinner with him and said it was a hopeless enterprise. He was usually drunk so quickly that he and he would just go into himself and had very little to say. So there's really very little to say about William Faulkner except that he was a genius on the level of, you know, Balzac or Robert Frost or Hemingway or Tolstoy. I mean, he really was able to um, take the American South, take his little so-called postage stamp county, Yachtnabatafa, as he called it, and like Balzac, he was able to run from the top of society to the bottom of society and see how all of this complex jigsaw puzzle fit together. You know, his fiction is important because it takes up matters that are really urgent for all of us as readers now. That's why we're still reading Faulkner. I mean, he's writing about the loss of community. You know, he's talking about the degradation of nature, talking about the impact of raw capitalism on the people that are forced to live in that system. You know, he's talking about the lure and the destructiveness of class. He's talking uh, really importantly about racial divisions. Uh, He's talking about Puritan obsessiveness. He's talking about the waste of war and so forth. You know, the South just becomes a lens through which the reader can view the modern world. Jay, what would you think Faulkner would make of American politics today? The fractured race relations, the stifling poverty in some parts of the country. What do you think he would say about it all? I think he'd be very dismayed. I, I, I really felt that he had the hope of more racial integration. I think that now in, in the year 2015, we're pretty much in the U.S. as badly off as racial relations go as Faulkner was in 19, say, 35. I, I think, you know, that the conditions in the South and the schools and pretty much throughout the country is one of extreme racial segregation. Uh, you know, I was recently down in a big city and visiting, giving a talk in South Carolina, and I drove around the city, and, and my host said, oh, here's where the white kids go to school, and then you go down the three blocks, and here's where the black kids go to school. Well, what has changed? You know, um, in the period after the Civil War, they had Reconstruction. There was a brief period there when it looked like things were going to get better, but rapidly the Jim Crow laws came into play. Uh, these were overturned with the Civil Rights Legislation of 1965, 50 years ago. Nevertheless, People are still, as Barack Obama said when he spoke at the 50th anniversary of the Great Selma Rebellion in March 7, 1965, there are states now trying to put into place laws to make it more difficult, not easier, for black people in America to register to vote. I mean, there is connivance going on right, left, and center in this country to make matters worse. Faulkner talked about the burdens of slavery. He understood, if you read a book like Go Down Moses, those seven stories, it's an intimate, complex meditation on race in America. And he understood how the bad karma of the years of slavery were going to create decades and decades, maybe centuries, of dissension and problems. And, uh, you know, Faulkner, I don't know, he probably would say, well, I told you so. Maybe that's what he would really have said. I think he had hopes. I think toward the end of his life, he thought things were getting better. And in fact, they were briefly, and there are some ways in which, obviously, we have an African-American president now. So some things have moved in the right direction. But nevertheless, this is a country that's terribly divided along race and class lines. And I think Faulkner understood all those divisions, but he also understood them in their human complexity. And it wasn't a simple thing for him. 
And it's not actually a simple thing for Americans now. And to understand and to sympathize with the complexities is always hard to do. And that's why we have fiction. And that's why Faulkner has, I think, never been a more urgent form of reading for especially Americans or for people from outside who want to understand the South. Although, I mean, there are ways of reading Faulkner. You can read him to understand your own country. Or, you know, we read James Joyce in America or in, in France or in South America, not because we're Irish and need to understand how things are happening going in Ireland, but, but you know, James Joyce has news about the nature of, of human nature that we can all learn from. And it's the same with William Faulkner. He's telling us about the human condition, the human heart, and its struggles. Every person struggled to find his place in a world of complex gender, complex racial problems, and class divisions that um, are very intractable at times. And Jay, final question, on a personal level, what lesson did you learn that you could maybe apply into your own life from getting to know the vulnerabilities of another person and getting close to those vulnerabilities? I think that I I learned from reading Faulkner that I have to be as open as possible to all classes, all complications of gender. I try to understand race in as deep a way as I can. And that as a writer myself, I have to apply myself with that kind of unwavering, energy. I mean, William Blake once said, energy is is everything. And Faulkner had that demon. He had the energy that could bring himself to the blank page every day, whether he was hungover, whether he was depressed, whether he was fighting with his wife, whether he was having complications with his mother. It didn't matter. He was able to bring every day amazing concentration to the page, to his desk. He was able to work through it. And I think anyone who wants to be a writer can learn from the life of William Faulkner. I mean, he had a lot going against him. He was rather poorly educated. He was living in a backwater at the time. He did not have access to many of the advantages that so many writers and people have today. Yet he pushed through. He was a defiant spirit. And there was a kind of nobility to him, finally, that um, is to me admirable. And I think I learned something about how to keep going despite of all of the problems and complications of life, by looking at this life of Faulkner, it's a wonderful mirror. And that was American novelist, critic and biographer Jay Perini. One Matchless Time, A Life with William Faulkner is published by Harper Perennial, and retails at about 15 euros in paperback. Okay, coming up next, the blurred line between tragic and comic in the writing of William Faulkner. But first, let's break to some music.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, now, if you're just tuning in, today's Talking Books is dedicated to the life and literary legacy of William Faulkner, one of the giants of 20th century American fiction. So now we're going to dig deep beneath Faulkner's narratives. But before we get stuck into all of that, here's a little taster of Faulkner's hugely original modernist writing style from his classic As I Lay Dying. In a strange room, you must empty yourself for sleep. And before you're emptied for sleep, what are you? And when you are emptied for sleep, you are not. And when you are filled with sleep, you never were. I don't know what I am. I don't know if I am or not. Jewel knows he is because he does not know that he does not know whether he is or not. He cannot empty himself for sleep because he is not what he is and he is what he is not. The terrifically thought-provoking words there from William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. John T. Matthews is Professor of English at Boston University. He's written several books on Faulkner, including The Play of Faulkner's Language, The Cambridge Companion to William Faulkner, The Sound and the Fury, Faulkner and the Lost Cause, and most recently, William Faulkner, Sing Through the South. Stephen Matterson is Professor of American Literature at Trinity College, Dublin. His past publications include Herman Melville, The Confidence Man, American Literature, The Essential Glossary, The Complete Poems of Walt Whitman, and Studying Poetry, which he co-edited with Daryl Jones. I asked Stephen about my own experience of wrestling with Faulkner's text. What's sometimes said about Faulkner and his modernist contemporaries is that they create not just a sense of what you're reading, but how you read as well. I think challenge the very sense of how you read a work. I think As I Lay Dying is a good example because on first reading of that novel, there's things you can't possibly understand. References to teeth or references to Dewey Dell's condition and so on until much later on. So I think even while you're reading the novel, you are in fact tempted to reread, you're tempted to go back and look at, well, oh yes, that explains what happened in that narrative much earlier on. But I think also, and I, I emphasise this very strongly, it seems to me that rereading Faulkner is essential for full understanding, but in some ways it's also a kind of falsification of reading Faulkner, because I think at some point you are meant to be as puzzled or as you know lost or as alienated as, as the characters themselves. Faulkner once joked at the end of his life when he was asked by a student at the University of Virginia what the student should do if he had read As I Lay Dying five times and still didn't understand it. And of course, the predictable joke was read it again. And so I, I agree with Stephen that this idea of repetition is built in, into the narratives in, in The Sound and the Fury, the novel that precedes As I Lay Dying in 1929. You have a set of uh, foretellings of the same story, in effect, each one of them deeply mysterious, uh, each of them with um, lacking information that's absolutely essential. And there's a, there's a sense of that um, sort of repetitiveness that goes along with the compulsion to tell stories over and over. And I think that that's part of, it's always been identified as part of a Southern valence in Faulkner's writing, a sense that these are stories that are traumatic in some ways, that they've never been fully confronted, that they have to be worked through repeatedly. And when you get to a book like um, Absalom, Absalom in 1936, which is a return to the story of the Cumson family and the Sound and the Fury, you have that brought to the foreground since the characters are themselves engaged in 
compulsive retellings of the same story, different angles, different interests, different solutions to the same problems. And so that, that compulsiveness, I think, is an important part of the repetitiveness of the narrative, certainly. And John, do you think Faulkner is a acquired taste? Because rereading him over the weekend and as a 40-year-old woman, as compared to a 20-year-old woman when I first read him, I still wrestled with him. I think that's a, it's an interesting question right now because I, I think that for readers whom Faulkner strikes and you know, teaching a lot of students who've never dealt with Faulkner before, uh, you know, you see this in the classroom. There's a way in which Faulkner's writing speaks to some readers um, almost directly. In other words, they don't need the apparatus. They don't need help. There's a way in which they recognize that there's something sort of overpoweringly entrancing about his style, uh, about the innovativeness of his writing. And then there are other students who have to be you know, other readers who do have to come back to the stories, work their way through. And, and then when they get to, you know, a certain point in a story, they recognize just how much Faulkner has gotten up into the air, you know, and they're able to, to see these things landing. And it, it takes a little bit more work. I, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little hard to say right now. I, I think um, in my experience, it's, it sounds silly to say, but it's some, somehow easier to read two Faulkner novels than to read one, because yeah. in a way, you, it seems to me you learn to read Faulkner. And if you, you know, just read, try and read one and grapple with it, you often you know, will then go away. I think if you immediately go on to, to read another one, I mean, you mentioned the relationship between Absalom and the Sound and the Fury. If you read As I Lay Dying After the Sound and the Fury, you'll see the c- comparable family dynamic. Reading Faulkner gets easier the more you read him, you know, to go back to the, the point you were mm-hmm. making about his Virginia student. So is it fair then to say that you grow into Faulkner, maybe that as we emotionally mature, go through the rough and tumble of life, you appreciate him all the more. You certainly have that moral development and that courage to maybe read him. Is that really what it takes to enjoy Southern Gothic, John? Well, I think that the, I think the Southern Gothic is associated with uh, uh, the South's preoccupation with history in some ways. Um, if you go back to an important precursor of Faulkner's in someone like Edgar Allan Poe, you can see a lot of similarities, this sense that there is a secret, unspoken, certain kinds of mysteries, um, some some of them encrypted racism, the history of slavery, <clears throat> a kind of incestuous preoccupation with reproducing a society that's the same from within. Uh, and I think that some of those are the some of those are the sources of the Gothic that carry through into modern writers like Faulkner. A novel like Absalom Absalom, of course, has, has a, uh, the standard, some of the staples of the Gothic tradition, uh, a house that's haunted with rumors of mysterious uh, occupants. It has a, a long history that involves sort of the repression of um, slavery and its violence, stories that have not been fully divulged, and those are all part of the Gothic, I think, uh, features of the novel. Bringing in narratives very in- important there. Um, quite often, I, I think we think of the American narrative as one of rationality, of enlightenment, of progress. And here's a Southern narrative which is not about those in which history has been fragmented, in which society, you know, because of slavery, because of the war, has a very different kind of uh, take. So I think the whole notion of a different outlook on life, which is not to do with progress, not to do with you know, amelioration of the social, I, I think, is behind a lot of Southern Gothic. Can I ask you about Sanctuary? It's a very <laughs> difficult read, certainly as a woman. It's 
quite an exploration on sexual violence. It's vivid, it's raw, and it's his most popular novel. How do you explain that, Stephen? Well, <laughs> maybe for the things you've, you've brought out. It's a novel that Faulkner expressed ambivalence about. He said he wrote it for, for money. In 1931, it's published when the novels that he's really worked hard for, As I Lay Dying, The Sound of the Fury, have not you know, sold terribly well. It's in some ways a kind of undoing of the Southern Belle idea with Temple, who is raped very brutally uh, uh, in Sanctuary. I think it's it's also a novel, which, although Faulkner you know, led to kind of disclaimers of it, it still brings in themes that he picks up several times in his work. And in fact, it's going to revisit the Temple Drake story in uh, his play that, that becomes a kind of prose work, Requiem for a Nun uh, and so on. It was um, it was also a novel that was very much hated by Southerners. You know, they felt that this really did represent the South in an appalling way. It sort of in, undid all of the kind of romance of the South and so on. John, do you think he was uncomfortable with the fact of his Southern heritage, or do you think he could come to? grips with it in some way. It strikes me that he was quite conflicted, certainly when it came to issues of race and class. And these themes are entrenched in his books. I think that's true. He ends Absalom Absalom with his protagonist, uh, Quentin Compson, the young Southerner who comes to Harvard for his undergraduate education, or at least for his first year before he commits suicide. He ends with uh, Quentin saying, I don't hate the South. I don't hate it. I don't hate the South. Protesting, obviously, that he has to overcome all that he's learned about the South's own sorry history in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, Faulkner, Faulkner rides those ambivalences. There's a kind of torture in his writing that comes through in its style and its narrative structure. And I think at one point he talks about how he needs to indict the South as well as to escape from it. I think he... Um, you know, he identifies the wellsprings of his writing in the South's tortured history. He lives in Oxford, Mississippi practically his whole life, while many other Southern writers leave, um, or at least other modernist writers. And so I think that is, it is the case that he doesn't ever make peace uh, with the South. One of the interesting things that happens at the end of his career, I think, is that he begins to consider the South from a more global context. And so in some of his later writing, like Requiem for Anon, or uh, his work in the mid-1950s of Fable, he's beginning to think about the South as a, even more explicitly, as a colonial or ex-colonial site, and thinking about it in terms of other Souths uh, around the world, and specifically in terms of the emergence of American empire in the Cold War era. When you mention Absalom there and Quentin, I don't hate the South, it's interesting that that's offset with um, his you know, his telling the story of the, the Sutpen to uh, his Canadian roommate at Harvard, Shreve. And Shreve says, tell about the South, you know, tell me about the South. I think in some ways Faulkner is sometimes an apologist for the South, but I think often thought himself as an explainer of the South, you know, explaining uh, the South to, to Northerners, to others, uh, and so on. I think some of the ambivalence is there because the, the more you try to explain something to say, well, there's a different racial you know, set up here, there's a different kind of society, a, an agrarian structure. And the, the more you try to explain something, the more you're seen as a defender of, of, of what you're trying to explain. So I, th I, I think Faulkner's ambivalence is actually, you know, expressed in that. You'll tell me about the South and I don't hate the South. And sometimes they, they blend into one another. And he certainly got himself into a lot of hot water. You know, he spoke quite openly on race issues and attacked the South for its policies. He wasn't liked in the South for his views. So it seems like he navigated a very tricky spirit, didn't he? I think in some ways he was a reluctant spokesman. After he won the Nobel Prize, he was often you know asked for you know 
his views on things and became a kind of inadvertent spokesman for the South when Time magazine wants a quote about what the South thinks about this. It's William Faulkner that they would uh, phone up. I think, I suppose his own situation is that he was very much a gradualist. He felt that change would come in the South, but it wouldn't be immediate. And the more the North tried to interfere with the South, the more stubborn the South would become about holding on to its things. In um, one of his novels, Intruder in the Dust, which very much focuses on this um, issue, there's a lot in the novel which Faulkner wanted to publish and then it got left out by the publisher. But one of them was a discussion about the South saying it, it will all happen. There'll be racial equality, there'll be social equality, all of those things. So, but it won't be next Tuesday. And he was criticised in the North for exactly that kind of gradualist approach uh, and, of course, hated in the South because of that gradualist approach. Well, while in, while in the South, among his own family, he was considered practically a communist for his insistence that segregation would come to an end, that um, that resisting it was um, like resisting snow um, in um, the Arctic. And so there's a, you know, there's a way in which he, he occupied a position that simply was untenable. Uh, and I think this idea that he was a public spokesman felt that he had to be a public spokesperson after he won the Nobel Prize is evidenced in his agreeing to travel on behalf of the State Department to represent America as um, a, a democratic uh, society. He was a very private person. I think he didn't want to record his um, his views, and I think he felt very uncomfortable. He often made mistakes, um, and so I think um, he was in positions that made him extremely uncomfortable. And he, he felt, I think, that as a novelist, he didn't have the authority to uh, suggest policies. I do think in a novel like um, Light in August in 1932, which is really his first attempt to think about race in the South in a systematic or widespread way, sort of unleashing the question through uh, in, into several different plots, subplots, that among other things, he examines the toxicity of Southern white racism. And I think what he was afraid of, as Stephen says, is responses in the South that would be uncontrollable, that would lead to yet more violence. Can I ask you, John, how big a problem was money for him throughout his life? Because over the years, he he went over and back to Hollywood and wrote a number of screenplays. I know that he was friendly with Lauren McCall and Humphrey Bogart, but I'm wondering how that had shaped his voice in some way and did he ever compromise himself? He always talked about his troubles with money as driving him to write trash. And so he went to Hollywood for the first time in 1932 on a MGM contract. He was driven there in part because his father had recently died and the family had extensive, he felt that he had extensive financial obligations to his family. He um, later in the mid-1940s, he ran into trouble again uh, with taxes that he had not realized he was liable for. He signed a painful contract with Warner Brothers. In fact, that's reflected in the Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. So it wasn't, I think, until the late 1940s, he got $50,000 for the film rights to Intruder in the Dust, as I remember. So that by 1949 or 50, he felt, I think, first for the first time in his life that he could breathe easier. But I think one of the most interesting things about the way his Hollywood years have been reassessed is that we appreciate much more how much his Hollywood writing and his um, familiarizing himself with Hollywood conventions actually fed into his writing. So a novel like Absalom Absalom, he thought of in cinematic terms. He thought it would make a great movie. It's very cinematic in its prose. 
even as early as The Sound and the Fury and some of the works that he was doing just before he went to Hollywood, it's clear that he was very mindful of the way in which cinematic narrative and representation would change the environment for literature. So The Sound and the Fury is a great example of a modernist work that shows many of the techniques of uh, cinema, quick cuts, the kind of parallel sequencing, editing um, that we see in the last section. And there's great music and rhythm in how he writes The Sound and the Fury. There's great punch to the words, there's great expression, and they're very vigorous. Early on, the book was compared to um, a symphony in its structure, and I think that the way in which Faulkner draws in the multitude of voices motifs that we associate, let's say, with Benji in the first section, you know, a certain way in which signature forms of thinking and self-expression, as well as the free and direct discourse that we sometimes get where we seem to be inside characters' minds, particularly, let's say, Jason in the third section. Those are, I think, Faulkner trying to draw on a variety of art forms that also seem in some ways jeopardized by the new form of silent film. I mean, one can think of the first section of The Sound and the Fury as a kind of visual recording of reality in some objective, impersonal way. Now, Stephen, we were having a coffee earlier and you were talking about some of the great writers that have influenced you and you were doing some comparisons with Faulkner and you were talking about the magical realists of Latin America and also Cormac McCarthy. I, I suppose what I had in mind was just how many writers have claimed Faulkner was an important presence in, the, in their own work and certainly a set of Latin American authors did so. Well, after Faulkner's death, um, a foundation was set up which was uh, partly to institute a literary prize for Latin American uh, authors. It ran for about 10 years before the money uh, ran out. It's kind of an interesting uh, you know, idea that, that, that Faulkner's you know, legacy should be one of stimulating works such as Marquez, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was one of the winners uh, of that award. Um, but several of them have spoken about the, the I suppose, the, the, the self-conscious about narration, the affinity they often felt with the South. And many critics have picked up on that. I think someone like McCarthy as well has often spoken about Faulkner as a key influence, you know, looking at people beyond history, looking at people who move out of conventions, looking at last things, the end of things, uh, so often there in McCarthy's work. And John, what do you think has been his literary legacy? How has he impacted on other writers? I suppose I'd be remiss not to introduce the question of Toni Morrison's relation to Faulkner, too, because when she was a under when she was working on her master's degree at Cornell, she wrote a thesis on Faulkner and Virginia Woolf and has had a long conversation with Faulkner in her writing. There's a way in which Beloved is a response to the telling of the story of the South, obviously from the standpoint of slavery and its after consequence, its consequences, its afterlife. Uh, I think her style, too, has also been influenced by his. <clears throat> There's a way in which she's a late modernist, still deploying some of, especially in Beloved, deploying some of the techniques of uh, stream of consciousness and of experiments with temporality, also trying in some ways to address and to de-Gothicize the story of the South so that it can be confronted. Uh, and so, you know, she bears witness to the importance of Faulkner, even when she, even as she says, she qualifies his, her relation to him by saying that she doesn't think her her writing is all that similar to his, uh, even though she has this, um, she's been very deeply affected by it. When he won the Nobel Prize, John, he gave a terrific speech and I was just rereading it over the weekend. He talks about the agony and the sweat and searching for the truth, you know, the endurance that we all need to have as readers, as writers, as believers, whatever it is. It was unbelievably powerful, a bit preachery, but mm-hmm. um, it's quite something, <laughs> wasn't it? 
It was, and I think it's important to remember that this is, you know, at the moment of the emergence of a Cold War in which the the um, sense of doom and of apocalypse are very pronounced. And so his notion um, that man will not just endure but prevail is very much a part of that the, that mood, you know, very much a part of um, of the moment. It's interesting that I think uh, Marquez himself quotes from that speech when he when he delivers his own. And he was very right. unforgiving, wasn't he, in terms of how he judged the state of play, politically and morally. He was very trenchant in his views. He was very fixed in his views on the nature of global politics and the responsibilities that countries had. I think that's true, but I think he also, I think he feared nationalism in a certain way and had had his taste of it through his own region's history. You know, in, a, in his, some of his later work, for example, in Requiem, he tells this long story. Um, the prose sections involve a retelling of the entire history of the New World in a certain way from the North American standpoint. And it becomes a, a narrative of rapacity and greed. Um, I think that he was widening his aperture, thinking about the the emergence of the modern state and of imperial relations in the 20th century from a standpoint that was highly critical. So I think in, in, in his case, um, he felt that there was an obligation to be as critical and as skeptical as possible of those political organizations. Certainly in a fable, his task seems to be, his objective seems to be to show the lethal effects of state power. And so that book focuses on a um, mutiny. He certainly really didn't care what the reader thought of him. It was all about the quality of his work and what he could deliver. When he composed two drafts of a preface to The Sound and the Fury in anticipation of a second printing of the book, which never took place in the form that he was expecting. He wrote about how when he sat down to write The Sound and the Fury, his fourth novel, that he decided that he wasn't going to worry about readers. He said he shut the door on all publishers' lists and and that what he wanted to do was to write a book that would give him um, pleasure. And so I think um, there is that that kind of um, deep... Um, resistance to the idea that one has to write for readers, that one has to have an audience at all. When he finished The Sound and the Fury, he tossed the manuscript on the table and said to his friend, here, read this, but it's a son of a bitch. I don't think anybody will be able to read it for a hundred years. But possibly that's what made him so brilliant. It's in some ways a very traditional view of what writing does, and what writing should do, uh, what the novelist should do. And several critics have described Faulkner as the last novelist, uh, as though he is someone who is taking a tradition of the novel that is there in Dickens, in Hardy, in Balzac, you know, writers whom he greatly admired. The responsibility of fiction to create a world, to invite us to judge morally the world around us, uh, to create characters who will engage with us in moral terms. So I think, you know, for all of, you know, we began by talking about Faulkner's greatness in terms of technique, in terms of modernity, in terms of modernism. There is something very, very traditional about Faulkner, something which I think is in a, a vein of strongly humanist, you know, uh, traditions. And John, if you were to recommend for anyone who hasn't read Faulkner or is going to come back to Faulkner, what books would you point them towards? Well, I think the great books are As I Lay Dying, and I usually suggest to readers that they begin with that book. I think it represents Faulkner's aesthetic at its most characteristic, a fragmented narrative. It has his experiments with stream of consciousness. It's also a very, it's a book that empathizes very deeply with the situations of the rural poor. So we see part of that humanist impulse that Stephen was talking about. And um, then I think the other great novels are Light in August, and I would suggest that usually next to students because there's a way in which this is Faulkner really 
opening up his his world and thinking about the South in broader terms. And then The Sound and the Fury and Absalom, Absalom, the two great novels about the Cumson family that, that he was so preoccupied with. I think I would agree with that. I think one of the great advantages of starting with As I Lay Dying is it's very much an enclosed world. A lot of Faulkner's other novels require things that you know from other novels, other texts. As I Lay Dying, it's, it's relatively compact. It sounds impossible to read. 15 narrators, 59 narrative segments. How are ever going to read this and keep it all in mind? It's not as hard as it sounds and I think just stay with it. The other thing I would emphasize is don't just read one. Fault was easier the more you read his work. And I should say also, I mean, when you mentioned Light in August, there's very little in Light in August that is experimental in the same sense as, as I Lay Dying or The Sound of the Fury. Uh, and the same is true of Intruder in the Dust of, of other novels as well. And his endings certainly kick, don't they? Oh, yes. I think ending of uh, As I Lay Dying, uh, Meet the New Mrs. Bundren, I think you just don't know what to make. Is it the reformulation of the family after bereavement? Does it represent a kind of comic resurgence of the family? Or is it a, a tragedy, this forgotten woman now being replaced by another comes from nowhere. I think that's I think that's exactly right. It, it's um, perfectly enigmatic. It's also potentially extremely funny, and that is true of the rest of the novel as well. The drollness, the kind of sense of the, of the absurd, it follows through right to that right to that ending. And Faulkner does have a knack for these extremely enigmatic endings. Um, Light in August ends with a romance that doesn't quite close, doesn't quite reach fruition, even though it seems as if it um, might in the future, beyond the end of the book. There's something about the way in which the sound and the fury just shuts down and clamps onto uh, you know, a past world that clearly is obsolete, has been eclipsed, but which is being ferociously defended and adhered to by those who are sort of doomed within it. And then there's the enigmatic ending of Absalom Absalom, too, in which we can't tell exactly what Quentin is thinking in this horrible moment when he realizes the worst about the world that he's uh, that has produced him, taunted all the time, uh, all the way through by his by his roommate, who even as he taunts him, wishes him to keep talking in order to keep him alive. The tragedy and the comedy, Stephen, that's what it's all about. It is, and I think when you read Faulkner, you sometimes realise that one of the things that his work is doing is saying, well, you can't look at tragedy and comedy as separate things. They're both inadequate ways of comprehending reality, of thinking about who we are. Your know, life isn't tragic, it isn't comic, it's a mixture of all of those things. You know, I think one of the greatness of As I Lay Dying is you see reality from the multiple points of view. Sometimes you read As I Lay Dying and you don't know whether you should be laughing. Should I be laughing here at what happens to Cash and his leg? Or should I be crying and feeling it's all so tragic? I think that's you know part of Faulkner's management of genre, of tone, is... is want to think about life's complexity that it can't be put into your categories of as straightforward as tragic, comic and so on. it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. The music today comes from American neoclassical composer Goldman. I hope you liked him. Okay, all that's left for me to do is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunahoo on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end the show today with some arresting words from the great William Faulkner from his iconic novel The Sound and the Fury. 
no battle is ever won. Victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. For listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.